All right, if you have your Bibles, please open it to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, the the heading, the chapter heading in my Bible, I don't know about yours, but the chapter heading in my Bible is one word, and it has an exclamation mark. It's the word hallelujah. Is that true in yours as well? Just the chapter heading should signal to you that something is changing. Because in the previous chapters, especially chapter 17 and 18, uh, we've seen some, some very dark and ominous things. We've been reading and studying about... Uh, the, the, the woman and the beast and the fall of Babylon and so forth. Well, now we come to two prophetic end time events that you and I will participate in. And I want you to understand that perspective. Tonight you're going to read about something you will be involved in. Tonight we're going to study something that you will participate in. You're going to read about it now, but eventually you will be there. You'll be part of it. This is a unique chapter in the book of Revelation. Those two events that I believe you'll participate in, or that maybe I should say it this way, that I hope you will participate in, that I hope you will qualify for, those two events are the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm linking those together as one. And the triumphant return of Jesus to this earth. Uh, Those two events are explained in chapter 19 and really are the climax of Bible prophecy. So I want to talk first about the marriage supper of the Lamb and what a celebration that's going to be. Perhaps the greatest expression of celebration, the greatest expression of praise ever written by human hand uh, in the field of music is the Hallelujah Chorus and Handel's Messiah. I used to be, uh, Dave, close your ears, you, you probably... You probably knew this, you probably forgot it by now, but uh, I used to be in a choir. I used to be in a, in a high school choir. We were uh, in a high school, that tells you it's been a while, right? I used to be in a high school choir. We were a gold medal choir. We were the number one choir in the nation. In fact, my senior year, we sang on Easter Sunday, we sang at the Naval Academy uh, for an early morning worship service, and then we went to sing at the National Cathedral uh, on Easter Sunday. And in the National Cathedral, we sang the Hallelujah Chorus for Handel's Messiah. I still remember it. I mean, I could still sing it for you right now. I got the bass part down. I doubt that it would sound like it used to, but... Do you know the story behind the Hallelujah Chorus or Handel's Messiah? On March 23rd, 1743, the Messiah was performed for the first time in London. Now get this date, March 23rd, 1743. First time the Messiah, that cantata, if you will, was performed for the first time. It was performed in London in the presence of King George II of England. He was deeply moved by what he was hearing. He was moved by by the music and the hallelujah chorus as it was sung He was deeply moved by the words, and when they finally came to the words, it says, For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The king stood up. Those words moved him. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. When he heard those words, the king rose to his feet and stood until the end of the 
premier performance of the cantata. And from that time on, listen, when the king stands up, everybody stands up. And so from that time on, people around the world have stood when the Hallelujah Chorus is performed. Uh, You probably already know this, but the Hallelujah Chorus was inspired by Revelation 19. Uh, In this chapter, the word Hallelujah is mentioned four times to, to describe the praise that will one day occur in heaven. Now, it's interesting that in the U.S., when do we sing the Hallelujah Chorus? When do we normally sing that? What season? Christmas, that's right. Usually sang around Christmas time. Uh, But in Handel's time, it was an Easter presentation. You see, the Hallelujah Chorus is really not about Christmas. It's about Christ's final victory. His ultimate victory. Now, as we look at Revelation chapter 19, it may interest you to know where the hallelujahs occur. They occur at the wedding of the Lamb when Christ will claim the church as His bride. The imagery of that description is full of meaning. God chose a wedding to describe that moment when we become one with the Lord in a unique way. He chose the concept of a wedding to describe that time when we will become one with the Lord in a way we have not yet known Him. We will know Jesus Christ in a fuller way than we do now. One day we will meet the Lord in glory face to face and we will become one with Him for all eternity. Just like a husband and wife become one, we will become one with Him for all of eternity. And the Bible calls that time, the Bible calls that event, the marriage of the Lamb. This celebration that will occur in heaven will be a celebration of God's goodness and God's greatness. Let's look at the text together, beginning in chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, Hallelujah! The the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and and worshiped God uh, who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants who fear Him, both small and great. In other words, everybody get in on this praise. Verse 6, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty does what? Reigns. Notice how John begins this dramatic section of Scripture. The first two words are significant in verse 1. John says, after this. After this signifies that John is talking about the dark and ominous scenes that we have read about in chapter 17 and 18. The last couple of times when we've studied, uh, it's been some difficult study to try to understand and comprehend Uh, the darkness of chapter 17 and chapter 18. And John is signaling at the beginning of chapter 19, 
That there is a dramatic change that's occurring in this prophetic book. There is a dramatic change that is occurring in this apocalyptic literature. All the horrors of chapter 17 and the horrors of chapter 18 are in the past. The marks, this marks the end of the great tribulation. This marks the fact that the dark days of evil are over. With the beginning of this chapter, we enter in what, to, in what some call the glory chapters of Revelation. G-L-O-R-Y, the glory chapters of Revelation. We've studied through some deep, dark chapters, but we come now to those chapters that present kind of the major theme of what we consider the major theme of Revelation. That is the second coming of Jesus to the earth and the establishment of God's glorious kingdom. And so let's understand this key term that's in the first six verses, the, current, the key term, hallelujah, or do you say alleluia? How do you say it? Whenever, however you say it, I want you to say it on the count of three, all right? And, and I don't want you to say it quietly. Did you notice when we read this scripture, the volume that is in that text? I, I, so I don't want you to say it quietly. When I count to three, I, I want you to say it however you say it, all right? One, two, three. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. But I want you to understand something. <laughs> That was nothing compared to what it's going to be. Now, this is the only time that you'll find this word mentioned in the entire New Testament, which fascinates me. But in a way, it intrigues me because that word is reserved for Jesus. It's the only time you'll find it in the New Testament. And when I, when I first read that, I thought, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. In my mind, I'm having this conversation. I said, what was it that they said when Jesus was entering into Jerusalem? On that triumphant entry, you know, what, didn't they sing, say hallelujah then? I had to go back and read my Bible. What did they say? Hosanna. I knew it was something with an H, you know. Hosanna. But here in Revelation, the only time you see it in the New Testament is right here. This word is mentioned four times in verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 6. The word is taken from a Hebrew word that literally means Put this on your notes. It literally means praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, with that in mind, hallelujah or praise the Lord, verse 1, salvation and glory and power belong to or come from, manifested from, it, it, it belong to our God. For true and just are His judgments. Now, look at verse 2, the second part of verse 2. There, there's something odd there. It seems to indicate that people in heaven are rejoicing when sinners are condemned. Look at this. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. They're not celebrating the fact that people are dying and going to hell, but they're celebrating the fact that sin will be abolished. You see, until this time, the redeemed have been delivered from the power of sin and the penalty of sin, but what they're celebrating now is that they're going to be delivered from the very presence of sin, which is something we all, I'm sure, long for. I, I bet old, old John, his eyes must have been filled with happy tears. Have you, have you ever cried just happy tears? I mean, you're not, you're not you know, maybe it's when you held your firstborn or your second or your third or your fourthborn. But your eyes are just filled with happy tears. And maybe, maybe it's when you walked your daughter down the aisle. And those, well, those are kind of happy, sad tears. Uh, 
but, but you know what it is probably to have your eyes filled with, with tears, but they're happy tears. John, I believe his eyes must have been filled with happy tears as, as he saw this mighty chorus shouting amen and, and hallelujah. What were they praising God for? In verse 1, they're praising God because he's Savior. Look how he's described in verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. According to verse 1, how many people would be present in this celebration service? How many people are present in verse 1? How many? All right, a great multitude. I wonder how many that is. A lot? That's a pretty good definition. It's a lot. Go to chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 9, and tell me how many that is. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Say it louder, please. No? Chapter 7, verse 9. What does it say? A number so great that no one could count. A number so great that no one could count. And those people are going to praise the Lord with a loud voice, thanking God that He's Savior. They're also going to praise Him because He is judge. Verse 2, for true and just are His judgments. Not only do they praise God for His redemption, they praise Him for His judgments. Uh, There's something here I want you to see. Look, look at this. He, look at this. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulterers. He has avenged. Notice, he has condemned. He has avenged. What the Lord, John is writing about this before it happens, but he says, listen, it's as good as done. It's as good as done. Because God is going to be the judge And then there's something very interesting. The smoke, verse 3, again they shouted hallelujah. The smoke from her goes goes up forever and ever. I'm going to tell you something. What God does is irreversible and it is permanent. When God abolishes evil, when God once and for all abolishes sin, when God once and for all seeks His vengeance, it's over. God... God has the final say, doesn't He? When the smoke goes up forever and ever, it will be a testimony that God has the final say so. And He has avenged. Uh, He's he's brought vengeance. All right, now, He's also praised because of His greatness. Verse verse 4. The 24 elders, representing Old and New Testament saints, and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, they fell down before the throne, and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, both small and great. They appear here basically endorsing the plan of God. This is the last time in Revelation that we see the elders. It's the last time in Revelation we see the four living creatures. And, and they're, mentioning, they're mentioned here 
uh, kind of as a, as a climax, praising God for what he has done, for who he is, for what he has done, and endorsing the purpose and plan that is about to unfold in the last two chapters of this book. And then they praise God because he is king. Look at verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a, a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like, a, like loud peals of thunder, again shouting hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. God in his providence will reign over the world. And it, it looked at, at times, as you, we've read through Revelation, it looked at times as, as if evil was winning. But God in his providence will one day reign over the world. And that will be one of the reasons for the celebration. And then there's two events that will usher in the long-awaited coming of Christ. These two events are the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Both events are significant. Because if you know Christ as your Savior, I believe, and this, this is hard for us to grab, put our minds around, I believe you'll be there. I mean, I literally believe you will literally be there. Those two events, the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, let, let's just read about it and see what it says. Verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. And in parentheses, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. In the Bible, the church is often referred to as the bride of Christ. So I need somebody in these two sections to look up Ephesians 5, verse 31 and 32. These two sections. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. I need somebody over here on these two sections to look up 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2 and 3. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 and 3. All right, so over on my left, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Who can read that for me? All right, he says this, he, he's talking about leaving father and mother and this, this whole wedding thing. He said, now this is a profound mystery, but I'm not just talking about a regular wedding. I'm just talking about a regular marriage. This is what, how's it in there, Brad? Yes, he said, but, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Paul says, you need to understand that, that there's a special relationship between Christ and the church. The Bible is... In the Bible, the church is often referred to as the bride of Christ. Let me show you again, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2 and 3. Somebody over on this side. Yeah, Paul was writing there. He says, listen, I, my desire is to present you to Christ. Like a virgin, I, my desire is to present you to Christ in this marriage relationship. Now, let, let's talk for a minute about Western culture, the culture in which we live in. In the Western culture, when we speak of a wedding, the eyes of everyone is usually on the bride, isn't it? There's bridal showers. There's bridal shops. 
There's fashion shows for brides. There's special luncheons for brides and bridesmaids. In fact, she's the center of attention uh, as she walks down the aisle. Who's the last one to come in? The bride. Everybody's standing up here. You know, all, all the groomsmen the, and, and the guy getting married and, and the preacher and the, and the girls. and Everybody's standing up here and we're looking at the bride about to come in. And so here she comes in, down the aisle, in a beautiful, expensive dress, bought just for that one day. And the groom stands here in a rented suit. And he's not even the best man. I mean, the groom just really gets kicked down the pole there. You know, he, he's just, he's in a rented suit, he's not the best man. And he stands here as everybody turns away from him, and they look at her. Wedding in chapter 19 is far different. In chapter 19, the emphasis really is not on the bride. The emphasis is on the groom. Chapter 19, the groom is the VIP in this wedding. All eyes are on the groom because he is the one who has made the difference. Let's read the text again and and dig a little bit deeper. Look look at verse... uh, Seven. Let us rejoice and be glad and give who? Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. I love this. I want you to mark in verse 8 or at least note in verse 8. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. She didn't have it on her own was given to her to wear. The bride is robed in righteousness that was given to her. If you might want to put in your notes there, this is in theological circles, this is called imputed righteousness or imparted righteousness. That is, righteousness that was given to her, given to us. Given to us at the moment of salvation. Verse 9, then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now this is an interesting question. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. If I were to ask you who is invited, your first response probably would be us. But wait a minute, you don't invite the bride to the wedding. So who, who is this that's invited as guest to this marriage supper of the Lamb? Who's, who's on the guest list? Well, I, this is just my speculation because the Bible really doesn't tell us for sure, but I believe in speculation at least that it, two things, and you might put this in the columns there of your notes. I think one of the, one of the groups of people that will be invited will be the Old Testament saints. They are God's redeemed people, but they were not the church. Church came into existence after Christ, after His death, burial, and resurrection. That's when the church was born. They were part of the church. Uh, the, or, or, the New Testament saints are part of the church, but the Old Testament saints are not. They're part of God's redeemed people, but they're not part of the bride. I believe that's part of the people that will be on the guest list. There's another group of people that likely, I believe, are on this guest list, and it's not the church, 
Technically, it, it would be called the tribulation saints. These are people who are saved during the time of tribulation. The church at this time, I believe, will have been raptured. The church will have been taken up. And so these saints who are saved in, during the tribulation, they're not the bride either in a technical sense. And so likely they're on the invitation list as well. Now, as we get ready to close this part out, I want you to notice one other thing. Let's go back to verse 9. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. He said to me, Do not do it. I'm a fellow servant with you, with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And then he says two words. What are they? Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Worship God. Now, all of a sudden the, the scene changes. First ten verses talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb when we'll be united with the Lord Jesus and all of that. But, but the scene changes beginning in verse 11. What, what's the chapter, well, not the chapter heading, but what's the subheading in your Bible there for verse 11 and following? The rider on the white horse. Now we're going to move uh, to what some have called really the climax of biblical prophecy. I'm referring to the triumphant return of Jesus to the earth. Old Testament prophets prophesied this event that we're about to read about. Jesus predicted this event. The New Testament writers wrote about this event. The second coming of Christ is the most dramatic and extraordinary event in Bible prophecy. And it is a major doctrine that is woven throughout the fabric of Scripture. I'm giving you a little note section there. I'm going to let you fill in some blanks here about Bible prophecy. Did you know that one-fifth of the Bible is prophecy? And that one-third of those prophecies relate to the second coming of Christ? Did you know that there are at least 333 prophecies concerning Christ in the Old Testament? Only 109 of those prophecies were fulfilled in His first coming. So that leaves 224 to be fulfilled in His second coming. Think about that for a moment. 224 different prophecies saying in one way or another that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Of the 46 Old Testament prophets, only 10 spoke of events related to Christ's first coming while 36 spoke of events related to His second coming. Just in sheer numbers, think about that for a moment. As far as Old Testament prophets, there's 46 Old Testament prophets in the Bible. Ten of them talked about the Lord Jesus coming for the first time. 36 of them talked about Jesus coming back for the second time. The Lord Jesus Himself spoke about His return to earth no fewer than 25 times. Throughout the New Testament, there are more than 50 exhortations for people to be ready for the coming of Christ. Now, now the reason I give you all those numbers, it's more than just interesting facts. They drive home the truth that, that you need to know. And I know you know this in your head, but you need to know it in your heart. All of those facts drive home the truth. Jesus is coming back again. I want you to see something. There are two references I want you to write down uh, just in the column there. 
write down Revelation 1-7. Revelation 1-7. Look, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of Him, so shall it be. Amen. Now, another reference to write down, linked to that one. Revelation 22, verse 20. Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In the very first chapter of Revelation, it says Jesus is coming again. And in the very last chapter of Revelation, it says Jesus is coming back. And the question that we're going to deal with tonight briefly is this. How will he come when he comes back? First of all, look on your notes. He will come visibly. He will come visibly. Look in chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven. John is writing. John is telling us his experience. John said, I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True with justice he judges and makes war. I saw heaven standing open. This is the second time in Revelation where John says, I saw heaven open up. Anybody remember the first time that that John wrote about heaven opening up, what it referred to? No, close. No, you you both said the same thing. I'm talking about in Revelation. Uh, Those are very good answers. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, it refers, John says, I saw heaven open up. And he was referring to the rapture, I believe, at that time. I saw heaven open up, and Revelation 4.1 talks about the rapture. Revelation 19.11, he says, I see heaven open up, and Christ this time is returning to earth. There are those who try to explain away this chapter. Can I just be honest with you? There are those who, who say that Jesus is not going to return in bodily form to the earth. There, there are good men and women who, who, who do not believe that He will come back visibly in bodily form. They say that Scripture refers to God taking us to heaven when we die. Uh, that that's what this is really about. Uh, some say He will return, but He will not be visible to the naked eye. That He will be invisible, kind of like when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. You really didn't see Him, you saw fire. And some say when He comes back, it won't be visible, it will be kind of like Pentecost. But do you remember what Revelation 1-7 says? I've already read it to you. Revelation 1-7 says, Look, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. I believe that Jesus Christ is coming back visibly. I believe that humanity will see Him. And in fact, if you remember what it says in Acts 1-11 describes the Lord's ascension into heaven at the Mount of Olives. The disciples stood there watching Jesus go up. They watched Him go up in bodily form into heaven. And the angel said to them, Acts 1.11, look at it in your Bible. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back. What's the next word? Next three words. Will come back what? In the same way. 
will come back in the same way as you have seen him go into heaven. They saw him bodily rise into heaven and the angel said, let me tell you something, he's coming back one day and when he comes back, he'll come back in the same way. I believe that Jesus, when he comes back, he will come back visibly. I believe his second coming is going to be just as real, just as visible. His second coming will be just as real, just as visible as his first coming. He went to heaven in a real body, and he'll return visibly in a real body as well. He'll come back visibly. Number two, he will come back victoriously. This, this is really good. I, I hope that you'll focus with me for a few minutes. Verses 11 through 16. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, Say it with me. Read it out loud. King of kings and Lord of lords. What kind of horse is he coming on? White horse. This is a sign that Jesus will come as a conqueror. You see, in John's day, Roman generals always returned from victorious campaigns riding on a white horse. They... they, and their armies would parade up the main street of Rome and they would be cheered and greeted... The white horse was a symbol of triumph. When the general came riding back into Rome on a white horse, it was a symbol of triumph. The first time Jesus came, he didn't come riding on a white horse. In fact, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. It was a symbol of humility. A symbol of his determination to go to, to the cross. But the second time he comes, he will not be riding on a donkey, humble and meek. Second time he comes back, he'll be riding on a white horse as the conquering King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There, listen, there will not be a military or political power that can stand up against him. Now, this is not the first rider on a white horse that we have seen in Revelation. Let me remind you in Revelation 6-2, the Antichrist or the false Christ will come onto the world scene on a white horse as well. Isn't that interesting? Just like Christ is plans to come on a white horse, the Antichrist will try to copy that, mimic that. And although he will appear victorious, in the end, he will be defeated. But it's, I think it's very interesting to notice the names of the rider on this white horse. Uh, verse 11, in contrast to the first rider, the Antichrist, this rider, who is Jesus, is called what? Two words, called what? Faithful and true. Faithful, he's done, he has done, and will do everything God has asked him to do. He's faithful. And he's also true. He does everything he says he'll do. And he's not a liar like the Antichrist. He is faithful and true. He said he'll come back and he will keep his promise. Verse 12 speaks of another name. 
that no one knows but himself. Look at it. It's interesting. In verse 12, that's even mentioned. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. And so, Pastor, what is that name? No one knows. But I think it's exciting to know that even in heaven, we'll learn new things about Jesus. Uh, you think you know him now. You've read your Bibles. You've been in Sunday school, BSF, and you, you come on Sunday. You think you know him now. But in heaven, we'll even learn more about him than we've ever known before. Then he has another name in verse 13. Verse 13, what is he called? Word of God. This is one of the familiar names of Jesus in Scripture. John 1.14 is a good example of that. The Word became flesh, he said, and dwelt among us. He is the Word of God. He is, he is God speaking to mankind. The Bible is the written Word of God, and Jesus is the living Word of God. And there is uh, one other name mentioned in verse 16. I want you to look at this. On his robe... And on his thigh, he has, the name, on, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is his victorious name, of course. And it goes to chapter 17, verse 14. It goes back, ties back to that. Chapter 17, verse 14 says this. They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And with him will be called Chosen and his chosen and faithful followers. The first time that he came, he, he, it was for a crucifixion. The next time that he comes, it'll be for coronation. First time that he came, he stood before Pilate. The second time that he comes, Pilate will stand before him. The first time that he came, he came as a servant. The second time he comes, he will come as sovereign. He'll come back visibly and victoriously. Number three, finally, he'll also come back with vengeance. Verse 11 says, with justice he judges and makes war. Uh, his purpose is clearly stated. When Jesus comes back, he's going, here's what that means. Write this down, it's three things. Here's what that means. Jesus will deal with sin in the world, number one. When he comes back, he will deal with sin in the world. Number two, he will settle the eternal destiny of everyone. He will settle the eternal destiny of everyone. And number three, he will establish his eternal reign. He will establish his eternal reign. So we pick up the story beginning in verse 16. Or verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair. This is describing what's going to happen at the Battle of Armageddon. Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men, of horses and their elders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw... The beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. Uh, the powers of the world, the superpowers of the world will gather to make war against God and his people. Verse 20, but the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. 
with, with these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword and came out of the mouth. Try that again. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. This is the battle of Armageddon. He's described as one with fiery eyes that reveals his insight, his knowledge, his anger towards sin. One also has many crowns. This shows his royalty, his authority to act. And then it says that he has a robe dipped in blood. Can you find that? What verse is that that talks about this robe dipped in blood? Say it again. 13, verse 13. Now, Get this, most scholars do not believe that that's a reference to the blood shed on Calvary. Most scholars believe that this represents the blood of his enemies. That his robe will be covered in blood. Write down the reference, we're not going to take time to read it. Isaiah 63, 1-3 talks about that. Isaiah 63, verses 1-3. through Jesus will be coming back to battle millions of people at the battle of Armageddon, and it will be a bloodbath. Let's just go back quickly to remind you what we read in chapter 14 of Revelation, verse 20. Chapter 14, verse 20. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Battle plan is already made for that climactic battle at the end of the ages, and it's described for us in verse 15. Out of his mouth, I love this, I love this, this is a good one to go home on. Verse 15, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of his fury with the wrath of God Almighty. You say, well, why do you love that? Well, that's the first verse. You need to understand something. Out of his mouth comes what? Sharp sword. The battle plan is this. God's going to speak and the victory will be won. I mean, just think of all the generals. Think of all the presidents. Think of all the world rulers who are going to strategize. Who are going to gather all of their equipment. Who are going to, who are going to spend hours and hours and hours planning this battle against God and God's people. And they will be convinced that they can win. They will be convinced that they can be victorious. But may I remind you that when this world was created, God spoke and the world came into existence. May I remind you that when the soldiers went to the Garden of Gethsemane to, Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, He spoke and they fell to the ground. And at Armageddon, he will simply speak to nations of people and they will be wiped out. And everyone will recognize in an instant he is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. And you and I will be there. I'm not talking figuratively. I mean literally. You say, Pastor, why do you, why do you say that? Well, this is, 
I want you to go to verse 14. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Who are these armies of heaven? Well, we had more. I'm just going to have to give you the references. I believe, number one, it's the angels who are part of his army. Let me give you two references to write down. Matthew 25, verse 31. Matthew 25, 31. And 2 Thessalonians 1, 7. I believe our references to indicate part of this army will be an angelic army. It will be the angels. But I also believe that part of this army of heaven will be Old Testament and New Testament saints. The church. 1 Thessalonians 3, 13 talks about God's people. God's following him. Uh, and I love this. I love this. Look what they're going to be wearing, this army. The armies of heaven were following him. I believe we're part of that. I believe part of the armies of heaven will be the Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, the church, the tribulation saints, all of us together. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Is his robe clean? No, his robe is covered in blood. But the armies are wearing... Listen, armies don't usually wear white. You know, it's not a good battle color. Their clothing, here's the point I'm making, their clothing will not be stained. Their clothing will not be stained by blood or anything. Here's the reason. is because when the Lord speaks, the battle will be won. You, you're not going to have to do anything to win the battle. You're not going to have to fire the first shot. You're going to stand there in amazement and watch the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords bring history to a close. And I just hope and I pray you're on the winning side. Because there is only one winning side. Amen? Let's pray. I want you to think with your eyes closed about that final battle. And no one will lift a finger against us. Our garments will be clean and, and we won't have to lift a finger to assist in the battle. Because we serve the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. I hope and pray you're on the winning side. I hope and pray that you know this Jesus who will one day bring all of history to a close. So Father, we pause before we leave to acknowledge, hallelujah. To acknowledge that you deserve praise for who you are, your goodness and your greatness. In Christ's name I pray, amen.